Hey, you guys, I want to let you know about Book of the Month, an exciting service that helps readers discover great new books while also promoting the work of emerging authors. Every month, the editorial team at Book of the Month reads through hundreds of new titles. They do the curating for you. They narrow it down to five to seven of the best new books on the market, and you get to choose your Book of the Month. To sign up, just visit bookofthemonth.com. And for a limited time, you can get your first book for just $9.99 by using the offer code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. I should add that Book of the Month recently launched curated audiobooks in addition to hardcovers, so members have options. You can choose one or the other, either the hardcover edition or the audiobook. And if you pick the audiobook, you can download it and listen to it right there in the Book of the Month app. My latest pick is a novel called Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez. It tells the story of a forgotten art star of the 1980s who died tragically and whose life and work and memory are later unearthed by an art history student. This is right up my alley. I can't wait to read it. So if you want to sign up for Book of the Month, remember, go to bookofthemonth.com and for a limited time, Get your first book for just $9.99 by using the code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. One more time, that's bookofthemonth.com. Use the code CHIRP and get reading. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hello, how are you? Welcome to the Other People Podcast. My name is Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. Happy Sunday. This is a Sunday episode of the program. I hope you're doing okay out there. I hope you're enjoying your weekend. Today, I'm going to be talking with three people. Rich Ferguson, Mary Carr, and S.A. Griffin, contributors to a new anthology called Beat Not Beat an anthology of California poets screwing on the beat and post-beat tradition. Getting back to that Kerouac quote, he said, it wasn't about music, but for me, actually, and also when editing this collection and thinking about poets that I wanted to include, to me, it does have a lot to do with music in regards to the delivery a lot of beat poetry is delivered. There is a, a music to it, a syncopation, an aliveness that music has. And just like the way music is able to sort of transcend different cultures, different value systems and things. And I think people all around the world responding to beat poetry, and in my opinion, a certain amount of that does have to do with the musicality of the form. Okay, that was Rich Ferguson, poet, author, and the editor of a new anthology called Beat Not Beat, an anthology of California poets screwing on the beat and post-beat tradition, available from Moontide Press. 
Rich Ferguson is an old buddy of mine here in Los Angeles. He is the current Beat Poet Laureate of the state of California. He has been nominated for a Pushcart Prize. He has performed all over the place and has shared the stage with people like Patti Smith and Wanda Coleman. He uh, is a featured performer in the film What About Me that features Michael Stipe, K.D. Lang, and others. And his uh, spoken word poetry and music videos have appeared in a variety of festivals, anthologies, etc. He, what else? He's written some books. He, had a, he has a novel out called New Jersey Me. Eighth and Agony is a poetry collection of his. He's done all kinds of stuff. Very talented guy, Rich Ferguson. Along with Rich, this is a kind of, uh, just so you know, this is going to be a roundtable discussion of beat history, beat poetry, some of the principal figures in the beat literary movement. And so uh, in addition to Rich Ferguson, I will be joined by Mary Carr, who is an independent producer of documentaries on the California beat era. Her films include The Beach, which came out in 1996, another film called Venice West and the L.A. Scene, which came out in 2011, and then finally another film about the California beat era called San Francisco's Wild History Groove, which came out in 2011. I should clarify that the Mary Carr with whom I will be speaking shortly is not the Mary Carr who wrote Lit and The Liar's Club. It's a different Mary Carr. She spells her name K-E-R-R, but pronounces it Carr. So just so you don't get confused, I will be speaking with the filmmaker, the documentarian Mary Carr, not the author Mary Carr. And then last but not least, I will be joined by S.A. Griffin, poet, author, publisher, performance artist, co-editor of Beat Not Beat, and also the editor of the Outlaw Bible of American Poetry. His latest book, Pandemic Soul Music, is due out from Punk Hostage Press in December of 2022. He is a United States Air Force, Vietnam era veteran. And he's published a bunch of books and performed all over the place. And he knows a ton about the beat era. He's a scholar of the beat era. So my conversation with Rich Ferguson, Mary Carr, and S.A. Griffin is coming up in just a moment. Before we get there, I do have a few quick reminders. First of all, my email newsletter. If you would like to sign up for that, it is free. It goes out once a week. And you can sign up at otherppl.com or bradlisty.com. It's simple. It's an enumerated list, essentially, of links to things that I've been reading and finding interesting. I'll only email you once a week. I'm not going to barrage you. If you would like to write to me, if you have feedback about this program, if you have a question, if you want to tell me a story, you can email the show at letters at otherppl.com. I would love it if you would support the show. You can do that at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. You can support the show for as little as a dollar a month. I try to make it easy on people. And as you move up the scale, you can get merch. Check it out. Patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash other PPL pod and support this show. Help keep it going. The Other People podcast is on YouTube. Did you know that? This show has its own YouTube channel and you can watch these episodes. You can see us. I'm doing video now. So If you're interested in watching the Other People podcast, go to YouTube, search for the show by name, Other PPL, and when you find the Other People channel, subscribe. Hit the subscribe button. It's free. 
Likewise, the Other People podcast is now available. It's not available in full, but it's on TikTok. I'm trying... <laughs> I'm very old and I'm trying TikTok. So if you want to make fun of me on TikTok, you can watch some clips of the episodes. That's what I'm doing on TikTok. I'm putting up clips. Isn't that what you do on TikTok? You put up clips of stuff. I, I don't know how it works, but I'm TikToking as best I can. So I think the handle is otherppl.podcast over at TikTok. All right. So uh, the main event today is a round table discussion. I don't do too many of these on the other people show. I don't know why, but I had a lot of fun doing this one with Rich Ferguson, Mary Carr, and S.A. Griffin talking about beat literature, beat poetry in particular, but just the beat era and the beat ethos, which I think is unfairly maligned, as you will hear me say, often unfairly maligned. And maybe I'm sentimental about it, because it was something that I was into when I was like 18 years old. And that was when it really first grabbed hold of me. You know how you get sentimental about this stuff. And I just think it's fascinating as a fan of books and literature to talk about particular eras and movements in literary history. So I had a great time and I really think you will enjoy this conversation with Rich Ferguson, the Beat Poet Laureate of the state of California currently and the editor or co-editor with S.A. Griffin of Beat Not Beat, this new anthology of poems by, you know, beat poets and post-beat poets that is just excellent. And it is available now from Moontide Press. So without any further ado, here is my conversation with Rich Ferguson, Mary Carr, and S.A. Griffin. Well, if we rewind to... My last semester at Rutgers University in New Jersey, I was taking a fiction class, but the very last week of the class, the instructor had sort of the ghetto week for poetry. And I flourished in the class. And, you know, I had had an affinity for poetry for, for a number of years. And, you know, she came, she gave me one of these sort of backhanded compliments at the end of the class saying you're a much better poet than you are a fiction writer you know and it's true it's true so anyway I after I graduated Rutgers promptly packed up my drums headed straight for California ended up in San Francisco literally the first place I stopped was City Lights bookstore and I picked up a copy of uh, Corso's Gasoline. And I was like, you know, these are my people. And I started uh, basically just going to every poetry reading I could growing up on stage, just, you know, sucking out loud, but just kept writing, kept performing. Eventually, this woman, Helen, kind of took me under her wing, sort of one of those people who's like, I see some potential in you, kid. And uh, she, you know, she really started, she introduced me to Kaufman, Bob Kaufman, before he passed away. She had all these stories about Corso, because uh, he would always stay over at her house and things. And eventually I ended up meeting Corso on the street, on the streets in North Beach one day. But I was just got more and more immersed into the community. And I once went to see 
Ann Waldman read, do a live reading in San Francisco, and you know, the way she prowled the stage, and she, you know, she wasn't reading from paper, it was just committed to memory, committed to her body, and she just embodied the poems, and she was just so alive and electric, and I was like, that's what I wanna do. I wanna, I wanna do something like that, and so, you know, I started committing work to memory and getting out and performing and eventually getting into a band, but kind of fusing the two, music and poetry, and using my understanding of drumming to kind of infuse my writing with a certain, no pun intended, but a certain beat. And yeah, I mean, I could go on, on and on, but that's kind of how I got into it. Okay, so I think it would be useful because I feel like there's some debate about this even among people who have an affinity for beat literature and beat poetry to define what beat is. I, I think people have different ideas about it. I think it's often in the popular culture confused with hippie culture, which it really is not as I understand it. So essay, I'll have you take a crack at this first. Like how, would, how do we define beat? Like what, what constitutes beat literature, beat poetry? Well, I... I think it's it is difficult. Uh, if you talk to uh, the old school people, which there are very few left now, they will say it uh, much like the punk scene. They'll tell you it was over before it began, that uh, all the rest that followed once it was quote discovered or uh, the revolution began that uh, that wasn't really beat. It was all commercialized, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. For myself, I think that. Uh, Aside from those people who are identified as beat, I think that it's very personal. I think that it's just kind of a way of seeing things, a way of living things. You know, the whole be here now, first thought, best thought, all those sorts of things. Again, I think it has a lot to do with inclusion, which especially in today's world, ironically becomes more and more difficult because as people, as identity politics is on the rise, in, ironically inclusion is happening less and less because people identify and separate as opposed to come together but i think that uh, for me um the uh, whole beat idea i won't i don't want to use the word philosophy because again people will argue there is no beat philosophy but the way that i write about it is uh beat is whoever and whatever the hell it is you want it to be so now go do so it. what about the term beat in terms of its introduction into the culture like i'm remembering a review of on the road in the new york times yeah actually i i have that right here and i uh, i mean i agree with what essay was discussing there is also this uh article this uh interview with kerouac i think it was back around 1952 and where he was quoted as saying in regards to the term beat the term has nothing to do with music. It names the condition of being beaten down, poor, exhausted, at the bottom of the world. And beatific as well, beatific. Yeah. Yes. I would like to quote what Wally Hendrick said at the end of San Francisco's Wild History Grew, my documentary. Uh, he said this business, in, he, Wally Hendrick was an artist, not a poet. He said, this business of being beat, he says, that's not how I act. I don't see it as being beat. I see it as you're basically doing what you want to do. And despite 
the family, the world, <laughs> money, anything. You do what you want. Because he said, anybody can sell out. <laughs> and so he really captured, and you know, my editor kind of argued with me about ending it that way, but he was, I got what he meant. Because, uh, incidentally, it's a wonderful interview. Uh, it was just, well, it was, Wally really could tell some great stories. <laughs> well, I want to, I, I don't think that you could possibly talk about beat poetry or beat literature without considering the historical context in which it was born. And exactly. the way that I have made the best sense of it for myself in terms of its power and staying power is the fact that it was born in the wake of World War II. Exactly. No, nothing seems yeah. more critical to me about beat literature than the fact that it was a response to a post-Holocaust, newly nuclear world, like a post-Hiroshima and Nagasaki world. Like, I can't think of anything else in the historical context that would be more powerfully meaningful or, or anything that you would be more prone to react against, you know, with our, with an artistic expression. Is that the, is that the case for you guys? Do you see it the same way or was there something else that you feel was fueling it in a primary sense? I think one of the main things to help this, make this happen is the economics at the time, particularly in the late forties, after the war and the fifties, things opening up, it, things, it made it possible for people who didn't have money or fam, you know, any, I mean, you, you have to realize we just came out of the depression, you know, there was nobody that was going to be doing art unless they had money or somebody supporting it. And there was the guys in the WPA, but that was about it. You had to work or starve. And so this economic, uh, you know, the economics were such that a guy or a gal could work part-time and have enough money to pay rent and eat and do their artwork. You know, they, the artwork or the poetry was supported by this wonderful situation where anybody could do it. It opened it up. It wasn't just the elite, those that had money in their family or somebody supporting them. This was just the average guy or gal. Well, Tony, let me let me interject here too. Tony Sabella talked about that. He talked about why they moved to Venice because it was just a slum by the sea. Literally, if you see films and pictures of Venice back in the day, it was a slum. It was very dangerous. They moved there for that reason because number one, they could afford it, and number two, nobody fucked with them. They were left alone. The art could flourish. But I wanted to back up to your comment, Brad, because I have always believed that the dropping of the atomic bomb, which you could argue is the second coming of everything, I think that that's the revolution that really is at the core of, of exactly what happened. But you also have to go back to Walt Whitman and, and come forward from Walt Whitman as well. But I think the dropping of the atomic bomb and what Mary's talking about, economics, um, people just, you know, and I'm old enough too that I was affected by all this at 68, 
because in the 50s and the 60s, we were still walking around going, well, the bomb could blow, we could die any moment. So the whole point to be here now was literal. Like live for today, not for tomorrow, because it could all just blow up. I think in today's world, it's been pretty much forgotten. You know, I mean, nobody really, even though Putin is rattling his saber right now, I don't think people really feel or believe the same way that we did, who kind of, like Mary lived through it, or I kind of was on the fringe of it, because um, it's a completely different mindset, and it really means something very different to the whole be here now. It's not just a joke. It's like be here now because not only is what's happening in front of you all that matters really, the future will take care of itself, the past doesn't exist, but we could fucking be gone right now because they dropped the bomb and it's all over. Yeah. Well, I think the recency of the bombing in Japan you know, if you lived through that history or if you were close enough to it, then it had a, a, a much more, like, like a, a much more visceral reality to it. And I think nowadays, I mean, you look at these polls that sometimes get conducted where a lot of people, uh, younger people in particular, like, are, don't even fully believe that, like, the Holocaust happened or they question yeah. it. Like, these kinds of things trouble me. But, uh, yeah. you know, I feel like that really makes sense to me as a point of genesis or one of the points of genesis. And then, Another thing that I feel like uh, needs to be said, and this speaks to what you were saying, Mary, uh, with regard to the economic situation in the post-war era, is that that really was the golden age of American empire. I mean, we were the preeminent superpower on the planet in the wake of World War II. You had all of the New Deal policies in place. You had, I believe, was the GI Bill part of that? Uh, where people, yeah. people you could, could go out, to- You could come out of the military and actually really buy a house. They were like, 10, what, 15, 20,000 bucks, Mary? You could actually own a house? Well, probably less than that. But the main thing for the artists, you know, was they had the GI Bill. They could go to the California School of Fine Arts and really incredible artists came out of that. And a lot of them were vets. Tony was a vet. You know, um, uh, Jimmy, uh, James Ryan Morris was a vet. You know, um, so there's, if you, I think also if you trace back the movements of the 20th century, you'll find a lot of them happened on the heel of war or during the course of war. For myself, it was Vietnam. Of course, I grew up with World War II vets and Korean War vets. But, but you know, all these things have a deep impact as well because if you go back to the 50s, there's a big response to not just World War II and Korea, but to Eisenhower. You know, in my day, it was Reagan you know, as it continues forward. So there's a lot of things that feed into this whole, uh, the genesis of all these things. Yeah, and you know, with the uh, Kerouac quote that I read before as far as the whole beat term, I mean, he mentions the idea of like poor, exhausted, beat down. I mean, we, you know, a lot of people were feeling that, you know, post-World War II, but one of the things that has always attracted me to poets of the beat movement is coming from a place of feeling beat down, you know, oppressed or whatever, was a true sense of aliveness. So, you know, taking that idea of beaten down, but like counteracting with a true sense of aliveness, you know, you see that a lot in On the Road and things like that. But even like, again, Ann Waldman or poets like that, I mean, just true aliveness and everything they were doing and saying. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense as a reaction to kind of the culture of death and atomic bombs and all this kind of stuff to respond to it by trying to be as fully alive and open as possible. 
Uh, and you know, this gets to a point I want to make before I forget it in response to what you were saying, Mary, about the economics of the time. Because as I understand it, in the post-war era, that was really the advent of suburbia as we understand it in a contemporary sense in America. It was also the advent of teenagers. Like really, like post-war economics were the first time that, you know, young people had cars, you know, and like went out driving around. I don't think as much of that happened prior to World War II. And I could have the history wrong, but I, I want to say I've read that. Is that. Does that square with your understanding? Yes, and this is a, another interesting comment that was made at the beginning of the San Francisco uh, dock by David Meltzer. And he he kind of introduces the whole scene by saying, you know, this was a, it was a very repressive time also, even though the economics were good, you know, God, uh, you know, if you were gay, you better be, <laughs> you better be in the closet, you know. And uh, people that finally, and of course, nobody had mixed with other races, you know, you know, it was really pretty bad time. And, and, uh, but, also, there was a feeling of, well, now we can have a house, we can be in the suburbs, or we have a little job and all that, but it was pretty boring. And so David just introduces this whole scene, and he says, you know, uh, <laughs> have every, anybody seen the TV, you know, Ozzy and Harriet? And he says, no wonder we... <laughs> well, there was more to it. They introduced it. I can't quote it all, and I shouldn't. But... Uh, because I'll mess up one of his words <laughs> or some of his phrases. But basically the idea was we just had to get away from this world. <laughs> it was just, you know, it was deadening, you know. And we had this desire and this opening up and we wanted to do our thing. And so they didn't want any part of, you know, so-called yeah. well, square that's, that's life. <laughs> That speaks to the staying power to me because I feel like these issues are still relevant. And I feel like the Beats, the Beats rebellion against this kind of social conformity and this kind of sterile, you know, suburban cultural milieu, you know, with maybe the exception of the COVID pandemic, when everybody started to think like, wow, it'd be nice to get out of this crowded city and go hang out in the suburbs. <laughs> I don't think that that, I don't think that that sense of, I, I don't think that the, the rejection of those kinds of cultural values by artists has diminished. I, I feel like that's still very much with us. S.A., do you have something to say? Yeah, I was going to, a couple of things. One, uh, you have to remember, too, that in the 50s, for the first time, the entire country was connected by highways. That was part of what Eisenhower did. 1955, I think, it was completed. Also, cars were better. You could actually go further in your car. So that's, the highways would be, I think, in the time, no different than the internet today, it connected people. So that was very important. Also, you just touched on COVID. It'll be interesting to see the response to COVID because as we know, a lot of people have adopted what you might call a beat philosophy of be here now because of COVID. It's like, how many people have left their jobs and moved on to something different? How many people have completely changed their lives and their ideas about how they live because of COVID? So I think we're gonna see a big response to that. I find it fascinating, I was talking to Rich about this yesterday, we were talking about a little bit about um, how the internet has connected people but separated people at the same time, how the commodification of art in general has changed everything. And uh, one of the things that I kind of 
wonder is uh, where is the response? Where is the kind of uh, subterfuge that we're looking for that kind of directly addresses all that's going on in our world right now? Why are we allowing people like uh, Trump to kind of uh, step on everything? You know what I mean? Where is the artistic response to all this? And I think we're going to see a lot happen, hopefully, in the next few years. And it's not really up to me. It's up to all of us, and especially it's up to younger people, because it's their world. It's the world that they're going to face. I mean, we're not, I'm not going to be here much longer. I don't know how long I'm going to be here, but relative to the lives that they're going to lead, it's really, it's really more on them than anything else. We just kind of have hopefully paved a little bit of a road that they can follow, the road we're all on right now with that beat path, you know what I mean? Hmm. And I also wanted to comment, too, the entire West Coast has always been very connected. Mary did this, showed this very well in her documentaries. It's still very connected. But a lot of people think that the, the beat thing happened in New York and San Francisco. It happened all over the country and all over the world. But on the West Coast, the people from L.A. and San Francisco, they were going back and forth all the time, all the time. Yeah, I don't know as much about the history of beat literature with respect to Los Angeles. Was the if there was an epicenter for it in this city, because that's you know, that's where I am right now, uh, would it be Venice? Is that the point of of origin for yeah. it here now? But there were coffee houses and things happening all over LA. There's a little magazine called uh, La Petite Sphinx. There was only three issues of it. Came out in the late '50s, early '60s, and it documented. Inside of it, it had people like Stuart Perkoff in there, an artist. It concerned itself a lot with art, but a lot of the, the beat people at the time were, were in the magazine. It's a little tiny magazine. But it had uh, listed all of the venues all over Southern California where you could find happenings, art galleries, poetry readings, theater, whatever it was. So it was happening everywhere. But Venice was the epicenter, but it was all over Southern California. There was a Cafe Frankenstein. Oh, gosh, there was Insomnia Cafe. There were tons of amazing places where you could go and find Venice West Gas House, you know. But and, yeah. and in terms of the actual origins of beat literature, my understanding has always been, you know, that it kind of started with that Columbia University set with Ginsburg, Kerouac. Um, Herbert Hunky. Herbert Hunky. Who, and then what was the, the guy who went to jail in my they all went to jail sooner or later. Well, I know, but wasn't there? Wasn't there? There was a murder. There was a murder among that set. That was. Right? Uh, that was. Uh, yeah. It's uh, what's it called? Uh, what's the yeah. film they made of that? It was Kill Your Darlings. Yeah, that might be right. Uh, yeah, I yeah. talked to Michael Schumacher, who uh, yeah. was Allen Ginsberg, is Allen Ginsberg's biographer. I had a very fascinating conversation with him, and we talked a lot about that period in history. But that is. Uh, is that a, a correct understanding of where it began? Uh, no, it began with, as far as to my understanding, it begins with uh, Columbia, as you said, not with the murder so much, but before that, because uh, they were, uh, uh, Kerouac was going to Columbia. I think it was Ginsburg who was kind of trolling Times Square and he met Hunky. I think that's correct. And then, uh, and then they hooked up with Neil Cassidy and uh, and they kind of that whole thing generated. Uh, Neil uh, Neil I think was uh, was um, yeah he was in Denver, in Denver. but I think he was he out was in, in New York, wasn't he? Isn't that how they he met Ginsburg? I believe so. Yeah. Yeah, because he was he was toying with the idea of going to college or something like that. Yeah, he kind of wanted to, you know, get into this scene. I I don't I can't describe it quickly you know enough to to bring it out now but 
anyway, Kerouac was very taken with Neil Cassidy. His whole, well, anyway, they decided to do On the Road. And On the Road, of course, is Yeah, going back and forth between the, Neil Cassidy. The, the, yeah. So Neil Cassidy was, yeah, yeah, and they went back to Denver and saw the old haunts, but all, all that, that was where he got the idea, of course. Well, I am looking up, oh, it's Lucian Carr. That's, that yeah, was Lucian Carr. Uh -huh. It was driving me crazy, but Lucian Carr was the student who I believe uh, was from St. Louis originally and knew somehow, I want to say Lucian knew Neil and introduced Neil to Alan. I, you know, I get the details mixed up, but there was that murder and then Lucian, I think, ended up going to prison for a bit. Um, but anyway, it's all very fascinating history and I want to talk a bit more about the like beat values like if there if that's a way to put it or the things that characterize beat literature yeah one one thing i you know i i just want to interject real quick as far as beat for me there again getting back to that kerouac quote he said it wasn't about music but for me actually and also when editing this collection and thinking about poets that I wanted to include, to me, it does have a lot to do with music in regards to the delivery of, of how a lot of beat poetry is delivered. There is a, a music to it, a syncopation, an aliveness that music has. And just like the way music is able to sort of transcend different cultures, different value systems and things. To me, that was, and also the fact that I, you know, was a drummer at the time and being exposed to be poetry, I think it, it does have a lot to do with music, if not consciously, definitely. It is infused with a musicality. And I think, as I mentioned earlier, you know, people all around the world, you know, responding to be poetry and in my opinion a certain amount of that does have to do with the musicality of the form um, especially jazz music right yeah, I was just gonna say jazz was really yeah important. yeah definitely I mean you you could see some of those old Steve Allen you know episodes where he would be on the piano and Kerouac would be doing some poems or something so it definitely does have roots in jazz but you know even just more, yeah, it has its roots in jazz, but I would also say other forms of music as well. Well, Mary also talked once about how uh, race music was kind of in there as well, what they called race music at the time. Well, many of the people, at least that I knew, are in contact with and were very influenced by music. David Meltzer, you know, Wally Berman, Bollywood Berman was a hipster. He hung out on Central Avenue, you know, and uh, but he was also an artist and started doing drawings for when they made an album, a couple album covers and all that. And I had the, oh God, it was a wonderful experience of dancing once with Wally Berman. It's a long story of how that happened. It was at an opening when I was, Les was having an opening down there and this was the party afterwards and uh, we're playing really great music. And, uh, well, I'll tell the story, it's not that long. And uh, there was a guy, Les and I were both there, we weren't married yet. 
and I had been drinking, which I really can't drink very well. <laughs> I mean, I, I get a little bit, you know, uh, a different personality, should, you, should, you, should I say. But anyway, I'm standing there, and the music's really good, blues, which I love to dance. And uh, Billy Al Bankston, one of the artists down there, who has just recently died. He was one of the artists of the early Ferris. And uh, kind of a good-looking guy. And I said, hey, do you want to dance? And he looked at me. And he says, who are you? And I said, well, I'm Mary. And he says, who are you with? Did you just crash this? I said, crash it? And I said, no, I'm with Les. He says, no, you're not with Les. You're some kind of starlet that hanging around Hollywood. This was in Hollywood, you know? I mean, I said, what the hell are you talking about, you son of a bitch? Because I was really mad. And Wally Berman heard it, and he knew I was about to punch him because, you know, I'd had drinks. Oh, this bastard. And Wally says, I'll dance with you. And he was a, oh my God, it was such a wonderful He's experience. He's a good dancer. He was really good. He could dance. He could move. He felt it. He felt it. He was really good. And so afterwards, Les came up and he was just, you dance with Bolly Berman. <laughs> so that was just wonderful. So that was my one experience with Wally. We actually open up the anthology uh, with a quote by Wallace Berman. Art is love Berman. is, Art is, love is God. Essay. Yeah, thank yeah. you. Art is love is God. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> thank you, uh, Tosh Berman. For, and he was, uh, Wallace <laughs> Berman was the center of the, pretty much you could argue, the center of the West Coast scene. Here, I mean, north and south. He came, he came up to San Francisco, too, and for a period of time was up here. But he had made that connection. And so Les, as an artist, a young artist, he had met Wally Berman. But uh, they were, I think a lot of the art artists were very influenced by his attitude, his aesthetic. Uh, completely non-commercial. You didn't do art for money. You did art because you wanted to do it. And otherwise, it had no meaning. It had no spirit. It had no soul. And uh, I think that was a big influence. I really do. So as I was prepping for this, I wrote down a bunch of things that I felt like uh, or I feel like are evoked by beat literature and poetry. And I just want to read it aloud because... This makes it make sense to me in terms of why it's still so relevant and why it moves so many people. Uh, we've talked about some of this stuff. There's the battle against social conformity. There is uh, spiritual liberation, which I think is very much at the heart of it. Sexual liberation, which when you consider its historical context, it, pretty far ahead of its time. Uh, Anti-war, anti-imperialism, anti-bourgeois values anti-elite you know i think a lot of the early reaction or the early formation of beat literature and poetry ethos if that's what you want to call it was a response to the kind of stuffy academic approach to art and poetry that uh, ginsburg and his cohort encountered at columbia so i think they're re reacting against that kind of elite uh, value system academically and artistically there is also the demystification of uh, illegal drugs or drugs in general. Uh, and also, I think I should have said this in concert with the, the elite, you know, the anti-elite point that I made is that it was also, a, a, I think, a, 
an artistic movement that embraced the working class to a degree that, you know, artistic movements that preceded it maybe did not. So like, like I think it hits all of these notes and that's, that, that has always really impressed me. You know, I don't think any of these values have diminished in importance over time. I don't think that any of these values, when I look back at it, you know, with the benefit of hindsight seem wrongheaded. You know what I'm saying? Sometimes we get these things wrong as artists, but it seems pretty clear eyed in a way that impresses me, especially since it originated with such young people. Well, there was the older guy, William Burroughs was on the scene, who was the old man at the time. But yeah, he was relatively, for us, he was young, he was like 35 at the time. That sounds young to me. <laughs> but yeah, I know, trust me, it does. But uh, no, I, I agree with you, Brad, all those things are still relevant, you know, and still very much, probably more so today than they ever were. And maybe it's the idealism, because I also think about ways in which, you know, beat culture, like, first of all, the way that's often conflated with hippie, you know, the hippies, who I also defend, you know, I, I will go to the mat for hippies, too, in a lot of senses. I feel like hippies get a lot right and are often uh, slandered. But uh, maybe it's because of the idealism of it or is it because of the unstructuredness of it sometimes i can you know beat literature i think it's fair to say can sometimes be sloppy you know it's the the first thought best thought ethos in literature does not always yield great results let's put it i think that we have to be blunt about that some people can really do it occasionally you catch lightning in a bottle but i think that it's fair to say some of the criticism comes from that part of it correct well you have to get the thought down that's the point it's not that everything you write is gold but if you don't get it down it doesn't exist and you have to have something to go back to that's my opinion anyway no you're, you're absolutely correct people uh, just like the way that they misunderstand Bukowski if I drink and fucking fight a lot I'm gonna be a great writer you know what I mean um, not true it takes it takes I mean everything that you do nothing comes easy not really if you're a raving genius maybe it comes easy but life will be hard but still, it takes, it takes tremendous dedication and practice to achieve anything. So it's not as easy as people think, but they think it sounds easy. Oh, first thought, best thought. I'm a fucking genius. Well, you know, I read a, uh, a biography of Jack Kerouac years ago, and I was a little bit stunned to read that he was pretty much sober the entire time he wrote On the Road. For a also very, very short period of time. I, I, he was... He, I, he was he was he was he was popping benzedrine, dude. That's he he would he would get clean. This is what I remember. Okay. He would get clean to prep because he treated it like he was an athlete. You know, he was uh he was he was really he was a very physical person as well. You know, and uh, so he would I think he would clean up to prep, but he was popping benzedrine. Those benzedrine putting in the coffee and shit. Those oh, guys so were speeding their asses off. So that's how he wrote it. Like, well, I'm, he supposedly wrote it in three weeks. He he was editing it for years afterwards. Okay. But to sit down and write that in three weeks, I think you had to have a little help. Basically, he had he could not drink. He could not drink. He would go into the place and just have a few drinks, and he would be dead yeah. drunk. Mary, were you ever around him? No, I I never met him. Never met no. him. Okay. But I knew people who had. The the Angula who. So many of those great photos that I used in two of my documentaries. She drove Neil Cassidy and Kerouac down the peninsula. I don't, for some reason, she was driving, gave him a ride. Neil talked all, nonstop all the time. Kerouac said nothing. 
Yeah, uh, and then she was at a couple of parties. She's one of the characters, Gia Valencia, he calls her. A very small part where he meets her at a party. But uh, it was Neil Cassidy doing all the talking and uh, Neil, just Jack observing. It was very quiet. So maybe he only did speed when he was like on a riding binge. I do like the way essay that you talked about him as an athlete, because I re really he was a great athlete. He was a football yes, player. Yes, very much so. He was a great. He went to Columbia on a football scholarship. Yeah. Right, and he really approached. I mean, you think about these like heroic riding binges that he would go on. There is something I, I always argue this. I think riding is way more physical, like physically depleting than people realize. Like you work a day. If you're focused, yeah, it takes tremendous energy. Yeah, it takes tremendous energy. So anyway, the, the biography that I'm re recalling, and I, maybe I'm misremembering it, I just, he was with a woman staying at her house or staying in her apartment. Probably Edie Parker, right? And she was like bringing him soup. Like she would just bring him a bowl of soup and like basically leave it at the door or leave it on his desk. And he would just, you know, around the clock. So maybe he was sober <laughs> except for Ben's dream. <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, I'm, 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 I'm making a, a fairly, slightly educated guess, but I think that that probably comes into play. But Mary's probably right too. He probably wasn't drinking. I mean, his alcoholism really, I, I think happened uh, a bit later because if you don't beat the devil by the time you're like 30 years old, you're kind of screwed. I think, I think too, one of the things that I believe is true about this group of people, the core group in the beginning, I think there was a tremendous um, amount of, uh, of empathy. I think that they were, they were uh, unique in that they were probably, there's a lot of what we today might call spectrum disorders. And if you look at Kerouac's life, there was a great exhibit uh, some years back at New York Public, I believe it was, the, uh, where they looked at his entire life from childhood to death. And if you look at the arc of his life, he obviously was a very obsessive character. You know, I think most great artists, most creative people are, have a, a, a great degree of obsessive uh, behavior. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, they wouldn't accomplish anything. You wouldn't get anything done. Some are worse than others. Um, you could see how he evolved and then he devolved. And I think he also was, a, what's true of a lot of creative people is uh, they're actually very shy people. They're not very, uh, uh, when Mary said he didn't talk much. I don't think Carol, I think he was a very shy person. And I think that uh, the public response to On the Road pretty much destroyed him. You know, I think for the rest of his life, I don't think he really was very comfortable. And he, he kind of indicates that and talks about it sometimes as well. You know, that great William F. Buckley thing, when you see him, mm -hmm. he's drunk as hell in public, I think was the only way he could feel comfortable. And Bukowski, I think when you look at Bukowski, he obviously, uh, in uh, the book, um, Ham on Rye, at the end of the book, he talks about meeting the muse. He meets the love of his life, more or less, or the familiar, which makes everything possible, which is booze. It wasn't like he was an alcoholic because he loved booze, but he could be comfortable in the world. And I think Kerouac suffered kind of the same thing. You know, these are people, as a creative person, you feel everything. Mm -hmm. You think everything. And you have no real control over it. And so often the only way to kind of heal yourself is through, uh, through uh, drugs or alcohol, something like that, or whatever your obsession might be. So let's talk about Bukowski while you bring him up, because he is often included in conversations about the beats, and yet I know he personally resisted that inclusion. He didn't consider himself a beat. No. I, like I, I, uh, when we were talking in the beginning, 
we actually, my wife and I knew Linda for pretty well for a long time, Linda Bukowski's widow, and I actually brought it up with Linda. And she flat out said, no way, he was beat. He didn't really consider himself part of that. He knew them, you know, he hung out with them and stuff, but he wasn't a pot-smoking beatnik. He, um, he did hang out with John Thomas. There's a whole called Bukowski in the mm -hmm. Bathtub, which is a great little book, John Thomas and Philomene Long, where they had, uh, where Bukowski had dropped acid, I think, with John and stuff like that, and they recorded all the conversations. But Bukowski didn't consider himself part of that scene at all. And if you really read his writing, it's not beat. It's just Charles Bukowski. He's kind of unique. His, his big influences were like Robinson Jeffers and John Fonte. And Jeffers was a bit of a, you could argue, a bit of a beatnik in the way he lived his life. But he was part of that Big Sur scene with Henry Miller and those people. And they were living their own bohemian life, which uh, was uh, before all this happened. But no, I don't think Bukowski was beat at all. Well, his inclusion, like, you know, in different quarters, merits inclusion in the anthology. And I thought it would be nice to have... Sure. Essay, would you read the poem that is, uh, or who, who who has it flagged? One of you guys. I got it. Okay, if you I would read right uh, the Bukowski poem, it's called The Tragedy of the Leaves. Okay. The Tragedy of the Leaves. I awakened to dryness, and the ferns were dead. The potted plants yellow as corn. My woman was gone, and the empty bottles, like bled corpses, surrounded me with their uselessness. The sun was still good, though, and my landlady's note cracked in fine and undemanding yellowness. What was needed now was a good comedian, ancient style, a jester, with jokes upon absurd pain. Pain is absurd because it exists, nothing more. I shaved carefully with an old razor, the man who had once been young and said to have genius, but that's the tragedy of the leaves, the dead ferns, the dead plants. And I walked into a dark hall where the landlady stood, execrating and final, sending me to hell, waving her fat, sweaty arms and screaming, screaming for rent, because the world had failed us both. That's, uh, I feel like that's, that, that touches all the bases, like all the Bukowski bases. That feels like quintess, <laughs> feels quintessential, right? Yeah, yeah when, when uh, I was started putting the collection together, I felt really strongly about wanting that particular Bukowski poem, but I had no idea about how to gain the rights to it. And that that's a whole separate other conversation about how we had to go through various channels to get the rights to certain poems. But Essay was the like the key to getting that poem. I think we had to go to Harper Collins, uh, started with Peter London or someone, and then I had to go through all these various channels filling out forms online waiting for months and whatever but yeah it's a lot of work getting the rights and the rights are complicated it's a different issue altogether but i'm telling you a lot of times what happens is these people pass away and the families don't know and this isn't about bukowski but the families don't know what they've got or what to do with it and it can really complicate things and quite often great great work gets lost because of that you know, uh, the problem we had primarily was there seems to be this new clearinghouse for a lot of uh, mm -hmm. what might be considered beat poetry and such, and that made it very difficult as well. Yep. You know, Diane De Prima, there's Bob. We had a little trouble with Bob Kopp, and we got that through Parker, ultimately his son, because yep. uh, a lot of Bob's work now is part of this, this, this thing, but the particular poem we used by Bob is not. So 
we were able to get the rights from Parker. There, there's not a Ginsburg poem in the anthology, is there? No, I don't think so. We kind of went back and forth on that because yeah. Ginsburg spent uh, most of his life pretty much New in New York. You know, not really, not really in the on the West Coast. But we missed quite a few. Trust me, we we've talked about that as well. I mean, mm-hmm. I would love to do hopefully an edit another edit on this if we could because there are some uh, great people that are not in the book lots of them and to get back to Bukowski being included in the book in the afterword that I wrote what I say in this and Rich and I talked about this is uh, the genesis of the book from my understanding I came in late to the game it's not necessarily all beat nor is it supposed to be it's beat centered with a great with a big focus on California and Bukowski you can't get around it his influence is profound to this day you know, one of the poems we did try to get a Robinson Jefferson poem in here, Jeffers poem in here, but we couldn't get the rights. It was too complicated. Mm-hmm. And if you read this poem by Jeffers, I mean, it's like Bukowski wrote the poem. It's it's amazing, you know. Well, yeah, and I think like you know, you talk about Bukowski as kind of a seminal California writer, certainly an L.A. writer, uh, and how his influence on the beats and the poets who came after him is immense. I mean, you can't you can't deny that. But I think the I think the reverse is true. I have to believe that beat culture and the poetry and the work of beat writers had some influence on Bukowski and his sensibility in the time that he was going. Well, yeah, of course it had to. But he, he talks about it. There's, he talks about meeting Ginsburg and calling him names and stuff. And, you know, I forget the poem, but it's a great poem. Uh, my, my friend Scott Weinberger passed away and wrote a great piece about that called People Just Aren't. Where he talk, I think that's it. Where he talks about the meeting of Ginsburg and Bukowski. And Bukowski met Neil Cassidy. Uh, I think he talks about, uh, says the Kerouac, I rode with your boy Neil today. I think it's called the Toreador, where they're driving around Los Angeles. And, <laughs> and Bukowski's getting the shit scared out of him because Neil was the great driver. Mm. That's, I mean, Neil Cassidy is somebody who could talk about for a long time. He's at the center of most beat culture, Ginsburg, Kerouac, a lot of them. He really is kind of the Paul Bunyan figure in 20th century America that really is kind of misunderstood. He drove his way through not just beat culture, but the hippie culture as well. You know, the beats, a lot of the beats became hippies. They were, the beats became hippies. They were hippies beats first and became hippies and neil cassidy who never really became a full-fledged hippie with long hair and shit but he drove the he drove the pranksters he brought acid to the world okay you know yeah what I mean? that's that's a very good point because he ne- he wasn't necessarily the kind of writer that kerouac became or that ginsburg was no but cassidy is at the core of what's called beat literature without the famous letter that that uh that uh, cassidy wrote to ginsburg which he shared with Kerouac, that revolutionized all their ideas about writing, Ginsburg and Kerouac. That's that. He was kind of like a spiritual figure. And it's amazing to me when you read about uh, beat cultural history or you read about, you know, uh, the pranksters and the hippies, when you read about the hate ashbury scene and the music that came out of that scene in the, in the 60s and 70s, Cassidy's all over that. Everybody who interacted with him seemed to come away moved. And I, you know, my understanding of him is just through what's been written about him. And then there's, there's these video clips of him jabbering and it's hard to make sense of him. He's, he's hard to follow, you know, in those prankster. I don't know if you've seen those old prankster uh, film strips, you know, that were taken. I have them all. Yeah. I have all of them. No, it's a Joan Anderson. It's called the Joan Anderson letter. And it, it revolutionized what, the way Kerouac wrote 
it also changed the way Ginsburg viewed all of it too. It's a very, very, it's seminal. It, uh, it was published recently in book form. Well, and I feel like Neil Cassidy embodied the kind of spiritual liberation, sexual freedom, uh, anti-establishment attitude that all of these guys aspired to. He was really walking the walk. Like he was stealing cars and he was having sex with everybody. He, he you know, didn't matter what gender. I feel like, I feel like everybody slept with Neil, it seems like, or everybody wanted to. No, he, was, he, he went both ways and uh, he had a love affair with Allen Ginsberg, which Allen, when he, when Neil died, a very famous poem by Allen, Neil's Ashes, very brief, just, you know, mourning the loss of uh, his friend and sometimes lover. And that's kind of, I think, what got in the way between Kerouac and Cassidy, ultimately, was what you're talking about, Neil's, Neil's lifestyle, Neil's attitude towards things. Because Kerouac, later in life, became very conservative, uh, fell back into his Catholicism, very much uh, retreated from all those things that he wrote about and what made him famous. Uh, what I understood about Neil Cassidy, that according to Leo Corcoran, he was a speed freak, but he was also, uh, I think, obviously, very manic, normally yeah. manic, you know, and wasn't treated that way, you know, so he had this unbelievable energy, and he had had a difficult early life. His father was an alcoholic. He was basically living on Skid Row in Denver, Denver yeah. and had to kind of take care of himself, you know, even to get enough to eat, you know. So he had... He was in and out of jail as a kid. Yeah, exactly, yeah. But he was really often out of control, you know, completely. You know. <laughs> but there was a, there was such an earnest sweetness, I think, to young Neil in particular and his desire to be educated, his desire to make art. I think that's why Ginsburg yeah. and Kerouac were so taken with him or part of the reason why. He was also phenomenally handsome. Yeah. He was like this, you know, kind of figure of the American yeah. West. He had kind of yeah. a, like cowboy Neil is what they call him, right? He had this kind of like cowboy swagger and build and this kind of classic American face. And uh, he was uneducated, but had a brilliance to him that might have been. I suppose he had an IQ of about 190. He was, ex he was exceptionally smart, which fits into everything because especially when you, the Kesey talks about him, you know, he's at the bus and he's, he's driving, he's doing everything at the same time. He's talking, he's talking, he's driving. He's, he's like, he's like this and the bus is not driving itself. But uh, how he was very um, in the moment, so to speak, because it was almost as if he was predicting the future all the time. And this was kind of what was at the core, I think, of, again, we talk about beat literature, but then Kesey's literature is uh, when, when Neil died, um, uh, Kesey wrote a piece called, I think, The Day Superman Died. So he was a physical presence, but he was an intellectual and spiritual presence. He and, uh, he and Carolyn also followed Edgar Cayce very, very, uh, during their lives. So um, there's a whole lot of different things that fit into it, but he was uh, big, as you suggest, in his way. He wasn't an angel. There's a great biography, uh, Anne Murphy, who was one of his, um, one of his lovers. She wrote a thing um, called, um, uh, what was it called? A Date with a Viper, something like that, which I had a copy of it. It's unpublished. I wanted to publish it, but she wouldn't let me. But he was no angel. Not at all. Not an angel. But yet, yes, you're right. There seems to be something angelic about, especially the younger Neil and his uh, exuberant way of embracing the world around him and bringing other people into that. There's no corollary. I can't think of one 
in any other literary movement in American history, at least. That's what I'm saying. In the 20th century, he's really a Paul Bunyan figure that is, I think, deeply underappreciated because if you look at the impact of not just the beat generation, but then the pranksters and what becomes the hippies, it's global. And Neil's at the very center of all of it. He's at the very center of all of it. He's who they wrote about it. As Nellen Ginsberg says in the beginning of How, Neil C., the secret hero of all these poems. Yeah. Well, there's, you know, there's a funny anecdote that I recall, and I, I want to say Jerry Garcia was trying to sum up like the magic of Neil Cassidy at his best. And he was remembering how you know, Neil would be talking at you like a mile a minute and just, you know, philosophy, religion, all these different things. He'd be, you know, all these different threads that he was weaving. And then someone else would come along and he'd get distracted and you'd be like kind of like hanging on his words and then he'd go off in another direction and then the party would continue into the night and then it would end at like dawn or whatever. And then you wouldn't see him for like six months. And then you'd be in a, you know, you'd be in some apartment in another party six months later and he'd walk in the door, and as soon as he'd see you, he would pick up exactly where he left off the last time he saw you and would continue the trip or whatever, you know, the riff or whatever. And he had that kind of brain, you know, and I think it was just this strange intelligence and access to language and way of being in the world that um, maybe like particularly in that time, but probably in any time, was just very unique and clearly everybody He seemed to, I think, if, to as it. I remember it, right, the reason he came to New York or to that Columbia scene was he wanted to be a writer, but he couldn't settle down well enough to really write. And the one book I did read of his, the third, the first third, I didn't think it was very good. <laughs> I'm first sorry. Third, yeah. I mean, that's my own personal opinion, but yeah. I don't think it was particularly interesting and a well-written book. He didn't seem to have the ability, but he very desperately wanted to be able to do but he couldn't seem to settle down long enough to get the thoughts in order and he 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 became an icon for an entirely different reason than his writing ability i think no i i disagree i disagree i'll tell you why because because of the john anderson letter when he wasn't trying to be a writer he wrote something that changed the game. First Third, I agree, is not a great book, but the Joan Anderson letter is is critical and, and seminal. Okay, yeah, he was trying. I, I I have this I have this sense of Neil Cassidy, as having been at his best artistically and linguistically, in these moments where he was mm -hmm. just talking. Uh, you know, I imagine if you would have recorded that and then put it to paper there are magical moments that could have been considered either great poetry or great writing. Visions of way, Cody. Especially Visions of Cody is all recorded uh, conversations with Neil Cassidy. With Neil Cassidy. Well, there you go. Uh -huh. You know, so a, a fascinating figure. And, you know, you talk about Allen Ginsberg because he, I think, is a leading, obviously a leading light in the beat movement. And in many ways, I think it's greatest... Uh, ambassador and promoter. Allen Ginsberg had an uh, incredible talent. In addition to being a great poet, he was also a great marketer for himself and for his friends. I mean, he, it's hard for me to imagine Jack Kerouac being the Jack Kerouac that we know now and who has a place in the literary firmament in American uh, literary history in the absence of Allen Ginsberg, precisely because Jack, as you said, uh, essay was so shy and I don't think had nearly the facility yeah. for self-promotion. But I think Ginsberg uh, was, was uh, um, I think he helped edit On the Road, 
and I think he'd definitely promote it on the road to make sure that it got published. I have a, a memory, and again, these memories are spotty. It's something I've read, but I want to say he, Ginsburg went into a midtown Manhattan publishing house, might have been Penguin, and sat on the floor with the manuscript and refused to leave until somebody read it. <laughs> like, he, was that, he had that kind of chutzpah. It sounds like something he would do. And I think he also had a marketing background, either educationally or professionally or both. But that always made some sense to me, too, because he had a marketing genius and a real sense of how to operate in the confines of, like, uh, you know, the publishing industry in the ways that maybe a guy like Kerouac didn't. But the point that I want to get well, to— I think, I, think, I think Gensberg was also a great networker. Mm -hmm. Oh, amazing. I mean, I read—like uh, I said earlier, I read his biography and talked to his biographer, Michael Schumacher, on this show a few years ago— and that book just absolutely blew me away because I, it, it seems unthinkable that a poet in the modern era would have an existence and a professional existence like Ginsburg. He was everywhere at exactly the right time, it seemed. It was uncanny. But, I mean, he also traveled the world, made a living off of his poetry. Granted, he wasn't, like, filthy rich or anything, but he lived the kind of existence that I think, you know, nowadays is either extremely, extremely rare or just flat out impossible. And it, it's just an extraordinary life that he lived. But in the, in the context of beat history, you know, you mentioned earlier that he was mostly East Coast. But in the, in the, the scheme of things in terms of how beat literature kind of exploded into the national consciousness, there is a famous reading at the, it's called the Six Gallery Reading in 1955 in San Francisco, which is where he first read his poem, Howl, mm -hmm. which is as close to a holy text as we have in American poetry and, and certainly in beat history. But he read that in public for the first time. And, you know, it's, it's amazing. Mary, it makes me think of the work that you've done to record this history in documentary mm -hmm. film. Uh, Rich, it makes me think of like readings that we've been at together through the years here in L.A., yeah. You know, this history is so fluid and slippery. Who would have thought that night in 1955 at Sixth Gallery that so much could change with one poetry reading? And really, wasn't it, it wasn't it that reading also that that eventually led to the Supreme Court case or something? Yeah. Or or well, Ferlinghetti was there, and Ferlinghetti uh, published how he. And he also sent him my greet you at the beginning of a great career, which is something from uh, passed on from Whitman. But without the Howell trial, I don't think any of us would probably be talking to each other. The Howell trial, I think, is what changed everything because that became kind of the beat shot heard around the world because literature and free speech was what, really what was on trial. Yeah. But that's six gallery the, the reading. Pushback, what was the pushback? Just so listeners understand, like the poem House, the sexually explicit homosexuality and, and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah. And in the six gallery, it was an artist run gallery. Wally Berman, it was six members Wally Berman, all artists uh, except for one poet, Jack Spicer. So the other five artists was Wally Berman, Wally Berman, Wally Hendrick. Wally Berman, Wally Berman. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> <in your moment. laughs> There's a lot of difference between the two. Wally Hendrick, Deborah Remington, John Allen Ryan, David Simpson, Jack Spire, and Hay Hayward 
Spicer and Hayward King. And they started the Sixth Gallery and then other members joined them. And each person had to pay $10 to be part of it so they could pay the rent. <laughs> and then they decided to, they, they started it because nobody was interested in seeing their work and they wanted to show their work. So as Wally described it, he says, if uh, we, we're going to have to present it ourselves because nobody else is showing it. So <laughs> we're going to have to do it. We're going to have to put it up on the wall. And uh, because of Jack Spicer, there was a little bit of a poetry connection. So they started deciding they would also have a dance. They would get people, if they wanted to have a performance along and see the artwork, because there was a little stage there, that they could use that for performances. And they charge them a little bit to be able to perform there. But anyway, uh, through the, I, I imagine through Jack Spicer, and at the time, Allen Ginsberg was in town and also Jack Kerouac, and they were there that night. So uh, the whole scene, I mean, it was just incredible. They, none of them, well, there was other people on the schedule, uh, other readings, and they brought people in. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you, I, I don't know exactly. I'm not going to name them off because I might miss one. <laughs> But, well, but I mean, it just makes me think, and I would say this to I would say this to people listening, you know, especially writerly people, is this idea of, well, if nobody's gonna put up a show for us, we'll put up one ourselves. Like this, this DIY attitude, and then just this notion of like, wow, you you never really know what night is gonna <laughs> end up being so pivotal, not only in you know your personal creative history, but just in. Uh, artistic history period you know like the fact that Ferlin Getty was there the fact that he came away so impressed by Ginsburg the fact that these other people were there with all their connections like it can start to seem magical and yet I'm sure on the night that it happened it was probably seemed relatively small you would think unless well, it, was, it was as big a crowd as you could get in there yeah. the fireball actually came uh, yeah. but uh as the way Wally Hendrick described it, there was just a seething mass of people yelling. Yeah. And they were drinking and they were drinking and carrying on and having a good time too. They were, they talk about passing around a jug of wine. Exactly. That was Kerouac. I want to say was walking around yeah. feeding everybody. wine. <laughs> uh, so Rich, I want to have you read another poem from the collection. This is, um, Ken Wineo, is that correct? Is that the correct pronunciation? Yes, <clears throat> and the way I, one of the, uh, one of the amazing things, one of the greatest gifts of editing the anthology was, uh, you know, other editors, uh, Kim Shuck, former poet laureate of San Francisco, Alexis Roan Fancher, LA poet, and of course, Essay, uh, one of the greatest gifts for me has been getting turned on to poets that I wasn't aware of through the whole process of putting the book together. But how I discovered Ken Wainia was I wanted to have Philip Lamantia in the book because he was one of those seminal poets for me when I moved to San Francisco, surrealist poet. And I was reading an article about Lamantia and through that channel found out about Ken Wainia, who was someone I had never heard of before. So this is a poem of his called World News Brief. 
The sun came up several hours early this morning. Witnesses reported it behaving oddly around 3 a.m. It was said to be lying in a pasture on top of the moon. One woman said the stars were on the ground and the whole horizon looked like it was being explored with giant searchlights. Three dogs caught fire on a rancher's patio, but when interviewed, he said their bones had been picked clean by the light and he had no knowledge of their present whereabouts. Police say when the son was sober, when taken into custody this morning and booked on charges of disturbing the peace, it is presently being held pending trial between our solar system and the nearest star. Farmers offered to buy the ropes hanging from the empty hole in the sky, but authorities say they will be handed over to the city planning commission to be hollowed out and used for snake holes in the local zoo. The shadow left by its absence is presently being investigated. Hmm. So, and what what uh, time? Yeah, what what era is that from, uh, Rich? Like he was he was uh, in the eighties, I believe. He was kind of bouncing around the scene, mid to late eighties, perhaps early nineties. Yeah, and so the con- and then so the the conception of beat literature and beat poetry as a continuing phenomenon. Uh, essay, you've spoken to this a little bit so far. Uh, you know, we—I think it, what I'm thinking of in particular is your reference to David Wills and Beatum, and the you know the way that these things are continuing to proliferate. But I think of contemporary literature, and I try to locate movements. You know, we have a way of kind of naming and categorizing and putting things into boxes to try to, I think, keep track of things. I don't, I, you know, there's only a few I can probably think of offhand since the beat movement there haven't been a ton and i'm wondering how you guys perceive the legacy of beat poetry and how it might be continuing or maybe are there splinter factions that have different names that i'm not aware of do you know what i'm saying like what is that what is the legacy and how do you see it continuing into the future and i'll let essay go first well i think number one the past is the present in terms of everything that's happened before us affects us presently. No matter who you are, whether you, whether you realize it or not, you've, uh, you've certainly been impacted by what came before you. In terms of the legacy, it's kind of interesting. No, there's nobody that you can point to right now that's world famous that's, quote, a beat writer or is living, on, living that legacy. But in terms of... Um, in terms of as we talked again about global culture, like David Wills is such a great example because of, he doesn't even live here. He lives in China, I believe. You know, there are people, I, I can tell you right off the top, there are people in Europe, people in the United States, people in Mexico, people all over the world that are still following this very closely and still still uh, practicing, so to speak. You know, and as you asked earlier, how do you know who or what a beat person or a practitioner might be all i can say is uh, you'll know you'll know it when you see it that's about all i can tell you I mean, and they mm. they're they're around i think for me it's really important um that the people that i do encounter are sincere i think that's another thing that you find often people who are really involved in this there's a great degree of sincerity in what they're doing because as we've talked about this a number of times uh there's no money in it 
there's no real popularity in it. You're not going to become famous for doing it. It's something that you're really committed to and you do very sincerely. Rich, what do you think? Well, you know, I was trading some, when I was first starting to get the idea for the anthology and first sort of putting it together, I, I wrote Gary Snyder and he was gracious enough to actually get back to me. And I was talking to him about beat movement and his sort of involvement in beat poetry. And, you know, he said, you know, that was, and I think this, and he was also getting at this idea, not only for himself, but other poets, that the beat movement was a time in their writing life, but they moved on and also did other things. You know, I think, at least from my understanding, you know, the beat movement as we know it from its early days, it was, you know, lightning in a bottle. It was a very, really a special moment in literary life, uh, popular life, culture, pop culture, etc. I I don't know, like, if there will ever be, I mean, perhaps there will be another movement that would come along that would be as, you know, all-encompassing, world-resounding as that. But one of the things that I wanted to kind of get across when putting the collection together is poets, certain poets for me that I wanted to have in the book, while they might not necessarily consider themselves beat poets, and I would maybe to some extent put myself in that group. I don't know if I necessarily walk around saying I'm a beat poet, but I definitely do have elements that would be of that ilk. But I, you know, when people talk, you know, express their sexuality through their poetry or dealing with political issues, even have a sense of musicality, like a really strong sense of musicality in their words and their delivery, to me, that is an essence of beat. And that flows, you know, that will continue flowing forward, whether it is given the proper name beat or not. And Mary, what what do you have? Do you have some final thoughts on how this uh, has impacted uh, our culture and how it'll continue? Well, yes, I think it will continue. I think it left a legacy that others will recognize because the spirit, your motivation in art and poetry is very important, why you're doing it. And none of these guys or gals were doing it to make money. They did it because they wanted to do it and they wanted to express themselves and bring a part of themselves and leave it to the world. And it show how, but so that has a lasting spirit that actually you can feel. You can feel it when you hear it, you know it. You feel the connection that happens in music too. Very, very easy to hear if you're have the ability to do it. And in art, uh, we were in Santa Fe and at the Indian Museum and they were showing some, an exhibition of members pottery. It was done ancient Indians that had settled there. And my daughter and, uh, was there and she says, my God, this is beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. I've never seen anything like that. She was very impacted by it. And 
Les was there, and he says, yes. And he says, you see the po the pottery out on the street where they're selling them in the Indian markets and that? It's all right. But this stands out because they're doing that to make money. These individuals made it because they wanted to, and they wanted to perfect it. And they, that spirit, it's, gee, hmm. he says, that's the difference. I feel like, too, you know, the this sense of like, for lack of a better way of putting it, like a global consciousness, this East meets West sensibility uh, that is all over, you know, beat poetry and beat literature. That's a lot of its appeal for me too. And I know that, you know, the transcendentalists did some of this as well, but it really feels like in the aftermath of the war, this sense of everybody being interconnected, um, really came to the fore in beat literature. I feel like that's part of its spirit. And I feel like it's maybe uh, essay, a big reason why it continues to resonate globally and not just locally. And I get again, now more so than ever, I think uh, we have an obligation as a, as a human species to come together. I think we're on the cusp of horrible, great, horrible things and great things all at once. We're no other time in history have we been in such tremendous flux. And out of that will come great things, but we're going to struggle to get there. But we have a, an obligation and a need. East meets West, indeed. Well, before I let you guys go, I've, I've really enjoyed the conversation, so thank you all. But before yeah. we go, I thought it would be nice to hear one more poem from a leading light in, uh, the, in the beat poetry movement from uh, Diane de Prima. And it's called He Breathes. And I believe, Essay, this is, I think you have it flagged. <clears throat> All right, here we go. Diane de Prima, who was a one-woman a one revolution. She was pretty amazing. Uh, he Breathes. So I am printing out poems to send to the 26 magazines who want them, or say they do. I figure I'd better get on it while I have the time. My book is done. At Viking, even now, getting messed with and in unthinkable ways, and I have the time, and I better use it. Yesterday, I went to visit a friend who's dying, and that always reminds me, get the poems out while you can. You know, and everything else for that matter, not to mention, I had a dream last night that wasn't so good. So I'm printing out poems, and the phone rings, and it's someone from The Examiner. And only this morning, I read The Examiner, will soon be extinct, so I wonder. How the guy feels about that, and I pick up the receiver. He says he heard Gregory Corso died last night, and he wants a quote. They always want a quote, and usually I ignore them. But this time I say, he had the greatest lyric gift of any of them. Alan, Jack, the greatest innate genius. Yeah, says the guy, but you know, genius and discipline don't often go together. I have discipline, the guy says, but no genius. I have just finished printing a poem for Sharon Dubiago, and I want to get on with it before we all drop dead, you know? So I tell him to call Alan's office. Alan will still have an office after we're all gone, and that office will have quotes for everything. I'm so grateful, and he wants to know about Gregory's time in San Francisco, and I tell him to call City Lights, and then I hang up. By this time, my printer is spitting out old haikus. I, ha I only have 68 poems and 25 magazines want them, or so they say they do, and I want to send at least three poems to each so they'll have a choice, and I'm trying to figure this out, do the math, when the guy calls back. He says he got through to Allen Ginsberg's office, and the woman who answered said only, he breathes. 
That's good, I said, and thought about Ray Bremser and Jack Michelin not breathing, and my friend in Mill Valley and all the rest. Me too, soon. She breathes no longer, they'll say, and somebody will mention my lyric gift, but no discipline, and what a bitch I was. So I get my sweater to go to the Asian-American restaurant. It's Chinese-Peruvian, actually. But suddenly I decide I don't want to leave the house. So I cook some pasta and think about Gregory breathing in the Midwest somewhere. And while I keep writing, the pasta is getting cold. And I can't help it. I wish I could send him some ziti with summer sauce. And Sarah Raffetto, my friend breathing not so good. Alan, too. And he wasn't even Italian. Well... That was wonderful. And on that note, I will uh, bid you guys adieu. I really appreciate the time and the conversation about uh, this subject matter. I love talking about it. And I'm, I'm such a sucker for this bit of American cultural history. So really appreciate your insights into it and your help and your help in helping me understand it better. Hey, Brad, if I could real quick, uh, this seems like a wonderful poem to perhaps wrap things up. It kind of a call to arms. This was the Jack Hirschman poem we have in the book, and it's called Path. Go to your broken heart. If you think you don't have one, get one. To get one, be sincere. Learn sincerity of intent by letting life enter because you're helpless, really, to do otherwise. Even as you try escaping, let it take you and tear you open like a letter sent, like a sentence inside you've waited for all your life, though you've committed nothing. Let it send you up, let it break you, heart. Brokenheartedness is the beginning of all real reception. The ear of humility hears beyond the gates. See the gates opening, feel your hands going akimbo on your hips, your mouth opening like a womb, giving birth to your voice for the first time. Go singing, whirling into the glory of being ecstatically simple. Write the poem. All right. You heard it, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> listen to yeah. listen to the man. It's great to talk to you guys. Thanks, Brad. And uh, really appreciate the time once again, and I wish you all well. Thank you, Brad. Yeah, anytime, brother. Thanks. All right, everybody. There we have it. That was my conversation with Rich Ferguson, Mary Carr, and S.A. Griffin. The new anthology is called Beat Not Beat, an anthology of California poets screwing on the beat and post-beat tradition. It is out there now from Moontide Press. Go get your copy. You can track it down. You can track down Rich Ferguson, Mary Carr, S.A. Griffin on the internet. You guys know how to do that, right? Do I have to spoon feed you on this? There is a lot to cover here at the end, as there usually is. A reminder to sign up for the email newsletter. Once a week it goes out. It is free. You can sign up if you want to keep in touch with me and keep in touch with this show over at the, uh, at the show's website, otherppl.com, or at my website, bradlisty.com. It is the same newsletter in either place. I have a novel out. Did you know that? I forgot to plug it at the top of the show. My novel came out earlier this year. It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. It's available in trade paperback, ebook, or audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook, so if you want to read my novel... Once again, it is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. 
If you want to write to me, the email address for the show is letters at otherppl.com. If you want to support this show, you can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod for as little as $1 a month. Support the show. Help me keep doing the show. If you like the show, patreon.com slash otherpplpod. The Other People Show, you can watch it on YouTube. Check out the Other People Podcast YouTube channel. Search for it by name at YouTube, Other PPL. And when you get to the channel, subscribe to the channel. Press the subscribe button. It's free. You can also check out other people on TikTok if you want to watch the highlights. I'll TikTok with you. I'm not afraid. All right? So there you go, a Sunday episode, a Sunday roundtable. It's the most civilized thing I've done in ages. And very enjoyable. Rich Ferguson, Mary Carr, and S.A. Griffin. Beat not beat. Go get your copy. I will be back next time around. My conversation with Pete Sue, the book club author this month. He's got a new collection out on Red Hen Press called If I Were the Ocean, I'd Carry You Home. That is excellent, and I'm excited to have Pete Sue on this program. All right? I think that's about it. Enjoy your Sunday. Enjoy whatever day it is. You can listen to this show whenever you want. It's a free country. Mm-hmm.